welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm Maz, and I speak to soldiers, academics, refugees, peacemakers, and anyone else who's been touched by war, in the hope of demystifying, and most importantly, de-glorifying it. If you like what you hear, please consider showing your support by reviewing the show wherever you get your pods. You can also support us on our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this episode. My guest today is Carl Miller, who is the co-founder of the Centre for Analysis of Social Media at Demos, the first UK think tank institute dedicated to studying the digital world. For the past nine years, he's been its research director, building new machine learning-driven approaches to robustly study online life, and has written over 20 major studies spanning online electoral interference, radicalization, digital politics, conspiracy theories, cybercrime, and internet governance. His debut book, The Death of the Gods, The New Global Power Grab, was published in 2018 and won the 2019 Transmission Prize. He presents programs for the BBC's flagship technology show, Click, and has written for Wired, New Scientist, The Sunday Times, The Telegraph, and The Guardian. He's a visiting research fellow at King's College London, a senior fellow at the Institute of Strategic Dialogue, a fellow at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, an associate of the Imperial War Museum, and a member of the Society Board of the British Computing Society. He joins me today to discuss information warfare, cyber attacks, weaponization of social media, and other challenges, as well as opportunities brought about by the internet. And to do so with a particular focus on what we are seeing play out as a result of the ongoing invasion of Ukraine. Carl, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. Maz, hi there. Thanks so much for having me today. So before we get into the, uh, I guess, murky waters uh, of the ongoing information war around Ukraine, maybe a little bit about, uh, about your rather eclectic uh, career. How did you end up doing the work that you do? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I asked myself that uh, more than <laughs> once. Um, so, I mean, like many things, not really planned out, but but really just one thing leading to another. So um, my background really is as a think tanker. So so I, I, I've i worked for, for 12 years now for a think tank called Demos, which is kind of one of the kind of standard political think tanks based in Westminster here in London. Mm-hmm. Um, I joined that actually coming out of a, a kind of a, a kind of internship in the foreign office looking at counter-terrorism mm. and counter-radicalization um, and I joined the kind of counter-violence team at Demos. Um, right. We wrote a pamphlet back in 2010 um, basically saying um, all terrorists and violent extremists are also conspiracy theorists. It was a kind of link which hadn't been made too much at that point and, 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 and we were very interested in it and kind of trying to explore how it you know actually being conspiracy theorists might create all kinds of dynamics Kind of mm-hmm. both personal and group, which which would actually lead you down pathways of radicalization. Um, unfortunately, the the nine eleven truth movement in the UK thought I was saying um, all conspiracy theorists are terrorists, mm-hmm. um, and okay. so began kind of two years of kind of angry debate with them. Um, and 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 over those two years, I I realised that this was a movement that was almost entirely living online. 
Um, mm. they, they, they organized, this was before Twitter, but this, this was on David Icke's forum and, mm. and, and, and Infowars forum. Um, but they, they were organizing unbelievably effectively and extremely galvanized, very energetic as a movement. And, um, uh, th- that that began, I, I suppose, with me, m- me and my colleagues, this kind of realization of just how important the internet was to changing the nature of social movements and groups. Um, plus, of course, as a researcher, I love data, and mm. so as we realized that not only was social media a huge agent of social change, it was changing all of us, it's changing the environment around us, but 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 also it was producing these am- amazing, unbelievable new data sets that we could actually study all of that with. Mm. Then I thought that was the kind of research challenge of a generation really that that my generation was really was responsible for and tasked with this massive challenge of how to make sense of all this data so um and one thing led to another and and then here we are um you know a decade later yeah and uh and uh, a number of tedx talks uh, a book and probably another one in the making uh and uh, uh certainly quite prominent uh, in this social media space yourself there were a couple of things that you just um brought up that um were really interesting first one is the that terrorists are conspiracy theorists. That's a really, I can't say I've actually, yeah, it makes absolute sense, but um, I can't say I've actually ever thought about it that way. Why would you put those two together? What what is it that makes a terrorist uh, a a conspiracy theorist? Because we come to know terrorists as, you know, it's political violence, it's, uh, you know, it's the result of the uh, oppressed, arguably, who don't have another means uh, to prosecute their political aims. Uh, why, 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 Why do you link those two? Well, it, it was exactly actually the the um, strange association of both of those two things and the same people, which which got me interested in the idea. Mm. Exactly. And, and that's exactly what the pamphlet tries to explain. Um, what, what we end up with, and it was co-written by a colleague of mine called Jamie Bartner, what we end up with was was the idea that um, uh, conspiracy theories are a kind of radicalizing multiplier they, they they do all kinds of things actually, which which make it more likely for someone to become um, a violent extremist. Um, mm. They um, they a spur to action in some ways. So if you really believe that you need to kind of wake up a benighted sheeple from mm. their kind of slumber of the mainstream media and and kind of corporate kind of politico elites, then um, sometimes a spectacular act of resistance is what's required. So so they kind of spur people into action. Um, but they also actually create a bunch of group dynamics, which um, make it more likely for a group to be kind of hived off from any kind of mainstream or countervailing information and go down a particular rabbit hole. So um, it's a lot easier for a, a leader of a group to, to kind of um, uh, squash um, dissent within the group by, mm. by by if every member of the group believes that there might be an infiltration by a CIA agent or an MI6 mm. agent. Um, and of course, if you um, believe that you're being um, uh, there's a conspiracy, a kind of dark plot against against you, you know, which in some cases, obviously, in violent extremist groups, there actually are plots to infiltrate them. Um, mm. It makes you kind of far more inclined to adopt all kinds of kind of um, operational secrecies and uh, uh, and and hermetic seals. Mm. So, right, all of those things together, um, basically, I, I, I don't really think. Um, I, I, of course, the vast majority of conspiracy theorists, just to <laughs> go mm. back to the earlier confusion that, that really began my foray into the internet, the vast majority of conspiracy theorists are not violent extremists. They might be mm. 9-11 truth movement, they might believe in QAnon, but they're, they're not actually 
um, in any, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that they believe that, you know, indiscriminate violence is 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 either legitimate or necessary to achieve a political end. But um, certainly being conspiracy theorist helps if you are going down that pathway. Um, that, that was the kind of conclusion. Right. And I guess the 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 behaviours of it, the conspiracy theor- uh, theories will motivate you greater because I guess once you start self-policing within your chosen social group, uh, you start embodying that the the norms of that group and 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 it, and it I guess becomes part of your identity. Uh, and I guess this is why debunking or talking to somebody who is who has gone down a rabbit hole uh, of a particular conspiracy theory becomes so hard because it become they become so wedded to the idea. Uh, and of course the uh, the the idea of autonomy, right? You can't fool me. Uh, so there's a there's a kind of a, 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 a kind of cognitive leap that needs to be made. Uh, for somebody who has gone down that rabbit hole uh, to to actually step outside of their own identity that have chosen to embrace. Have you, have you found that? That's right. I mean, th- th- that is one of the most infuriating things, really, about any that anyone has found who has spent any time trying to debunk or argue with conspiracy theorists is, is the, the simply the self-sealing nature, as you said, of all those ideas. So so w- when there is, you know, a, a, a government kind of media alliance, as, as so many conspiracy mm. theorists believe there is, to, 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 to refute and cover up, you know, not, you know, the, the the real existence of 9-11 or the the role of the Illuminati in, in, in modern affairs or anything like that, um, then of course they're going to produce evidence which undermines your, the idea, you know, your your theory. Of, of course they're going to be able to ha- control experts. Of course they're going to be able to control journalists. Um, mm. And, mm. and really it's kind of like almost like the only kind of idea where evidence to the contrary is taken as evidence of the actual existence of the conspiracy itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, really infuriating. But I would say, also, one thing I did learn spending spent spending the years that I did um, talking to the 9-11 truth movement um, is that a lot of this isn't really acting on the level of, like, rational thought. Mm. So... I, what I found was that this is as much to do with kind of identity, and actually, this this is some this is a point I'll make again when it when it comes to information warfare. Perhaps um, mm-hmm. this is as much to do with identity and belonging and kinship and friendship as it is to do with evidence and reason. So I, you know, I, I remember being involved in a big debate in London with a with a kind of celebrity conspiracy theorist, and you know, people would turn up with like. You know, to cheer on their side, and mm. and and they were wearing you know t-shirts with kind of truth seeker on the front, and they knew each other, they were friends with each other. They'd go down the pub afterwards and have a pint. You know, they were selling t-shirts in the back of the room and tapes and memorabilia, and it it was like going to a kind of like a concert, you know, mm. where you could buy like the merch of your favorite band. Um, so there's lots of social and and emotional ties, I think, of of mm. people to to that. Um, and what what better way of finding meaning in the world than than truly believing that you're part of a tiny chosen few who can really see the true nature of world affairs? I mean mm. that is that is a huge way of carving out a role for yourself in a in a in a world that often gives far too little meaning to people. Mm. Yeah, and is there? I mean, is there a particular profile of a person that you have found that is more susceptible to conspiratorial thinking uh, than others? Well, I, I did actually. <laughs> I wrote quite an angry and, and, and I, I think probably in retrospect fairly rude article um, <laughs> trying to 
called a beastery of the 9-11 movement where I tried to divide it into the different into the different groups um I'm not I'm I, I thought that looking back at kind of 20 22 year old Carl that was probably 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 slightly unnecessary but um but but yes no certainly there are different like tribes if you will that 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 join up um there's there's kind of this is all generalizing of course but there, there were definitely um kind of 20 something kind of postmodern aligned students that that are questioning truth in general um there's definitely um kind of people with i suppose like both uh, genuinely hard left and hard right beliefs that that um that that kind of go into conspiracy theories already with the belief that the state is 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 uh, um unrecoverably corrupt and and, and compromised hmm. um there's there's um there's kind of a, a kind of older kind of conspiracy theorist as well that that i don't want to sound rude but just has an enormous amount of time on their hands uh, and hmm. and has kind of um, become a a kind of expert in a particular say niche within the field um uh, in the same way that one would become an expert in a niche in any area of life. So, so for instance, like a former physics teacher who, um, you know, w- would write about the kind of melting point of steel, you know, in the in the peer reviewed journal that the 9-11 truth movement would maintain. And, and you know, that would, um, you know, and, and would therefore have something of a kind of currency and a following within that community. So, yeah, it, 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 it it brought and a lot of um, people that yeah, as I said, I, I I think are just very angry with the state, the establishment, mainstream media. Sometimes from a completely personal experience, you mm. know, say of um, being very wrongly treated um, by say a, a journalist, uh, mm-hmm. and and that leading to believe that journalism is corrupt, which leads them to believe well, what else are they saying, which is lies, you know, and mm. so on. Um, so right. and a, 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 a final group would be the utterly self-seeking, profit-minded. Um, which we cannot deny, uh, mm. you know, economic incentives are always very powerful ones. And, and that there would always be a, a kind of few voices in these debates that would be, you know, would have some have held or at least claimed to have held some kind of position in the CIA or some position in the FBI. And they would immediately become celebrities in this world and they would immediately monetize it. And they would be the people selling the T-shirts in the back of the room and that kind of thing. Yeah, of course. It's, it's, it's incredible. I mean, it's a, I guess it's nothing new, right? I mean, conspiracy theories have always been, uh, around, uh, but to come back to the point, what, what the second point that I really liked in your kind of opening uh, answer is data uh, and the value of data. You know, you just mentioned before that you know we're generalizing, and that's that's I guess the beauty of data that it gives us sufficient data points that we can draw some patterns uh, from it to then make some uh, generalization about broader macro level behaviors. And exactly. this is like, yeah, sorry, go on. Well, no, exactly right, and 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 really, um, you know, it, it, I've the kind of quieter kind of fascination of 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 the last ten years for me has has actually really been around the methods mm. and technologies to make sense of all of that. So, um, you know, me with with my colleagues, you know, it, it really has been like we largely formed Chasm, Centre for Social Media, both Chasm Technology, the company, and also in the think tank to. Mm really to build new ways of leveraging all that data and turning it into something which we could actually understand, you know, amidst all the chaos, you know, and complexity and internal contradiction, which data sets that social media creates uh, often has for us. Yeah. And, and I guess that's, that leads me into the, the title of your, uh, of your book, The Death of the Gods, The New Global Power Grab. 
which of course is is a well-known uh, and I think it was an international bestseller. Maybe we can just zero in what the book is about and what do you mean by the death of gods? Because I think this, this big data really speaks well uh, to what you try to cover in the book, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Um, yes, well, I mean, so the book... Um, it, it, I, I, I took a year out to write it, um, it because I, at that point I'd spent maybe five or six years and we'd been working on counterterrorism over here and working on conspiracy theories over there. And we've been working on, um, you know, early disinformation operations over there. And, and, and it was a way of basically trying to construct a kind of bigger picture across the different like empirical islands of our mm. work, so to speak, mm. to provide um, a kind of more general explanation for what's going on. Um so it, it was really a, a book which um, w- was wrapping together um, data and analytics and machine learning and 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 all the methodologies which we were developing at CASM um, mm. with like kind of the I suppose the beginning of a kind of interest that I had in kind of journalistic storytelling as well and and how to wrap kind of you know the stories of individual people and individual groups in amongst all of that data and whether I could fuse those two things together. Um, there was an idea at the heart of it, which was which was power. Um, so um, I thought power was an idea which kind of like freedom and liberty and 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 equality and and justice. You know, it's one of these huge unit ideas, which mm. is so important mm. as always as being as being for, for so, so emotional. Long. Mm. It's it's very emotional, mm. um, and 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 it's an idea which writers have kind of always turned to actually at moments when throughout history their own societies are kind of locked in this kind of period of convulsive big shift mm. so um you know machiavelli all the you know machiavelli did it in the you know the florentine renaissance marx did it as uh, as as he was watching um his society lurch into the just into the industrial revolution and foucault did it like to make sense of the kind of liberations um of the 1960s um like all these, uh, you know, writers that I've kind of admired um, uh, so much over uh, over kind of all of my education have kind of used power to ask this question about how our lives are shaped. Hmm. Um, and so I thought, well, power seems to me to be quite an overlooked idea now, and it seems to be shifting in quite important ways in lots of different parts of life. So, so really, the book was an endeavour to to. <laughs> to kind of go out on the road and, and bring myself kind of face to face with power and it shifts, whether that meant face to face with it in terms of the data or face to face with it in terms of actually seeing it happen. Hmm. And what did you, what did you find? Uh, because I, I really liked the title, uh, the death, uh, you know, of the gods. Uh, so yeah. what did you find through the book? So um, the gods were, um, were all those old holders of power, be it a large hierarchical company or states, um, or, or uh, mainstream media outlets, um, or um, in many ways, conventional military forces. Mm. Um, I, I imagine we'll come back to that that, that particular claim mm. in, a, in, mm. a, in, a, in a little while later. Um, uh, and and the, the, the kind of starting point was that a lot of the parts of life which we regard to be conventionally powerful have become a lot less powerful than they used to be. Um, mm. And a lot less powerful than perhaps we suppose they are now, um, but but the, the the kind of question which my editor had given me for the book was, um, is this th- th- so much is 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 quite clear really, but is this shift in power 
is it is it liberating us or is it imprisoning us you know mm. are we awakening in this kind of digital age actually with more powerful at each of our fingertips uh more power at each of our fingertips than ever before mm. or actually are we be our lives being shaped by these kind of distant sometimes murky forces of which we don't understand and and the kind of the, the answer was um both um both is, both are happening at the same time like there are both all these tremendous liberations and and it isn't really a book i mean it, it kind of came out at this time when there was like a tech lash happening mm. and it was kind of book after book coming out that was kind of criticizing the overweening power of facebook which my book does as well um you know it's hard to hard to avoid the mm. the the mm. kind of power of the tech giants but um but it wasn't simply that. There were all these amazing liberations um, happening at the same time across politics and 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 uh, and, and journalism and and uh, and business. Um, each one of them um, were causing kind of uh, all these people um, who um, uh, were previously powerless to kind of find new routes to power. Um, but at the same time, um, there were also all of these um, new forces of control for sure. Mm-hmm. And the underlying explanation for both those two things happening at the same time was that um, I thought, and this was really this. No one needs to get the book now because I'm I'm giving them the uh, I'm giving them the final page. Um, <laughs> was, was the, I'll put um, a link to it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> was that um, p- power had gone wild? Um, that was the argument. So we've always tried to control power and cage it. Mm. Um, those the bars of those ca- of that cage are things like, of course, the law. Um, and professional standards and norms. You know, mm. we, we try and control, don't we, man? It's the way in which mm. you reach mm. into my life and I reach into yours. And we say mm. there are certain ways where, where that's legitimate and certain ways where that isn't. And all the way from like embarrassment and social social censure, all the way down to imprisonment, mm. you know, are, are all the kind of penalties which we levy, you know, to try and steer people away from illegitimate and and uh, and and illicit ways in which we reach into each other's lives. And mm. And whether you look at, the explosion, the remarkable explosion of cybercrime and 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 the, the sheer difficulty that that law enforcement agencies have with bringing um, uh, cyber criminals um, to any form of justice now, mm-hmm. or whether you look at um, the fact that information warfare is being fought outside of the rules of war and outside of any kind of published rules of engagement, mm-hmm. or whether you look at large companies that that simply have new forms of monopoly we don't recognise yet, or whether you look at online electioneering online or entirely new forms of political parties which are setting up. Everywhere you look, everywhere you look, um, power has flowed in and between those bars yeah. um, and uh, and is not being controlled by them anymore. Yeah, and I, I really like the fact that, that you're suggesting that it's that it's flowing between. You know, it, it's very easy for us, and, and, and I've just recently interviewed uh, Peter Singer, and we talked about the democratisation of war, um, and that's something we're seeing, you know, particularly playing out in Ukraine. Uh, but also, there's this there's this feedback loop, right? If we just look at what we just talked about about the maybe not conspiracy theories, but the kind of pigeonholes and stovepiping that we find ourselves in, when this interplays back and forth, uh, you know, I also get sucked into. So while I might feel powerful uh, for having my megaphone, I'm also just through that megaphone, I'm also siding with a particular view with a particular bias and just through that alone through the likes and shares and uh and my inner network that i have i'm digging a deeper and deeper hole uh i guess i'm going down uh deeper and deeper into my own little rabbit hole of my exclusive uh group of people which therefore then takes power away from me in a way or or it makes me more susceptible uh to manipulation uh by those who are 
you know, and again, without getting conspiratorial on it, but those who are, you know, uh, 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 steering narratives and conversations um, kind of bring out macro ones. Is that for is sure? That, yeah. That, and yeah. it's a great example. Like social media is, is, is a really great example of, of how that kind of liberation and, and, and new form of control mm. um, come wrapped hand in hand. So, yeah, I mean, of course, like we all have tremendous new capacities at our fingertips to not only, um, you know, um, uh, capture attention and, 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 and do something to the world with social media, but also to learn about it. So um, one of um, one of the stories in the book is about um, actually now a, a very famous individual called um, called Elliot Higgins, who runs Bellingcat. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it was it was a bit more of a. Bellingcat had, had, isn't quite the kind of global brand that they are today. But but for those who haven't heard, they're, they're kind of a group of kind of um, open source intelligence um, kind of uh, volunteers and investigators. Um, and, and Elliot had, had begun his career um, uh, unemployed in Leicester, kind of arguing in the comment threads of The Guardian, but but realising that he could learn about um, the, the Iraq and Libyan wars um, mm. just as well as any journalist in the field by by looking at all of the battlefield imagery that was emerging and at that point was completely unexploited by journalists. So, you know, he started to have like mini scoops um, and then he got a really big scoop, um, which, um, you know, he I think he, he, he realised it was Croatian weaponry going into Libyan rebels and that landed him on the front page of the New York Times and and now now he's, uh, you know, you know um, a, a talisman, I suppose, of the open source intelligence community and 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 and, and uh, the the CEO of Benincat. So, you know, th- there's there's a great example about about a liberation, you know, mm. and how how talent and and sh- I think uh, honestly a kind of enormous eye to detail mm. and a lot of time kind of transformed Bellingcat in, uh, and and Elliot into into the kind of you know global force for I I think good that they are now. Um, but yeah, on the other hand, murky control, lots of murky control. Um, murky control from the platforms. Who's creating? Who's creating the content? How do the how do the pipes work? But then also murky control from lots of actors that are actually attacking the platforms. Mm. And another murkiness in 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 our not knowing really where the dynamic sits between the platforms trying to defend themselves and the and 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 all the range of actors around the world that are trying to manipulate and subvert them. I mean that has been that fascinates me that that conflict. Mm. Mm. It's been a secret war which, which has been if war is, is quite the right metaphorical word to use, but a, a, a secret struggle that's been happening back and forth between the social media platforms and I think military states and other, and other actors for years and years now, very dynamic, constantly changing. And, what, and very, what do you mean? Explore rare. that a little, because I, I, I can't say I'm, uh, I'm intimately familiar with what, what, what you're talking about. Sure. So um, information warfare, um, it, well, should, should we begin with information warfare? And, Please, and, yeah, and, sounds good. And, uh, and we'll, we'll build up to, to that conflict. So um, let's begin. Let's begin with this, this shift that began to happen um, to um, operational doctrines around the world in, in around 2005. I, I place it. Others, others mm-hmm. might, might um, point to slightly different times. Um, you know, one after the other, um, militaries around the world, I think both liberal democratic and autocratic alike, Kind of all began essentially the same line of thinking, which was, and I'm, I'm kind of I'm quoting most directly here from the UK from the UK doctrine. Mm-hmm. Um, we live in an information society, um, uh, an information age, in fact, 
Um, how um, do we as a military stay relevant in an age where information is increasingly central to everything? Hmm. Um, and each of them essentially rewrote their operational doctrines, integrated actions, the UK's one. Um, all of them, of course, noticing that the end of any application of controlled violence is, is ultimately behavioural behavioral change of some kind, mm-hmm. or you know, yeah. either stopping people doing something or making them do something. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and they, they all realised that um, in all, the, the answer was this kind of, I think, enormously important conceptual flip in what information was. So the, the information had long been a tool of war um, and everyone recognised that. You know, everyone, we, we all see the blow-up tanks before mm. Normandy. You know, we all see, you know, um, we all see um, crusader kings mm. trying to manipulate, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the, the kind of enemy's picture of their own forces. It's always been used to dissimulate yeah. and, and, and confuse and convince. But all these doctrines... Um, reconceived of information not as a tool of war, but a theatre of war, mm-hmm. a space that war, in fact, happens within. And they were quite explicit about this in many cases. You know, air, sea, land, space, cyber, and information. And 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 it kind of changed the kind of language that militaries began to use to talk about this. So they began to talk about it as a space, you know, information manoeuvre, kind mm-hmm. of mimetic weaponry, kind of information dominance operations, things like that. Mm. Mm. Um, and 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 that's where we get to this question then of 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 this kind of conflict between, say, militaries and social media platforms. Mm. So um, militaries, and again, liberal, democratic, and autocratic alike, I think, began to then build capability to um, maneuver in the information space. Perhaps they re- they kind of realized that um you know if information is a space then attention is is the most kind of important territory within this space mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. capturing and holding attentions rather like in the information equivalent of capturing and holding a hymn mm-hmm. or yeah. you know, a ravine or a crossing or something um and so they I, 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 they began to build capability i think um you know we we see some of this um and and there's much that we don't see um to um be able to maneuver across the information spaces which were most important and that of course social media was part of it mm. um mm. we know more now about what's happening on the autocratic side of things so so that's where the story kind of becomes a bit less general but but autocratic militaries began to generate ways of um being able to manipulate information flows on social media accounts really so that would involve mass account setup that would involve um, being understanding how you seed memes in certain ways to get mm. to spread, how you would game algorithmic curation happening on social media platforms to make things more visible or perhaps even to suppress information as well. Um, mm. And then, of course, the kind of slightly softer and squishier kind of questions around kind of gluing together cognitive psychology and dopamine studies and the other kind of human-centered dis- disciplines and understanding, well, what, what how how do we shape messaging in order to achieve the effects that we want mm, to hit the right triggers yeah yeah and and so like you know the, the, uh, social media platforms realized that you know that there were all these accounts being created i'm going back years now but mm, mm. You know, they realized that all these accounts being created which um were um inauthentic in their mind weren't who they say they were but possibly very great in in number um and in, initially, I think they treated this as a form of spam. Mm. So, you know, it's like, oh, well, that we've always had... Harmless spam, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, it, it might harm user experience. So we don't want people getting loads of, you know, like porn bots, you know, because mm, mm. they won't use Twitter anymore. You know, that that that, that that's the kind of um, thinking, I think, in the early days, not just on Twitter, in fact, but I, I think this was, again, more general. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, kind of more recently, there's been the realisation that, hang on, maybe a military doing this is kind of qualitatively a kind of categorically different kind of threat to a spam agency mm. um, and, and and setting up basically teams to defend their own platforms against this. Um, Facebook, especially um, kind of recruiting in um, lots of people from kind of more mill and security and Intel backgrounds mm-hmm. um, onto their own kind of platform integrity and safety teams um, in order to, Basically, I think, like, ultimately set up a kind of detection and enforcement response. So mm. find it happening and then learn more about it if you can and then respond. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting dilemma for, and when you're talking about, you know, organisations like Facebook and Twitter and so on, I mean, the, and you mentioned the attention economy. I mean, that's what, you know, it's the maintaining the eyeball on the product. That's how they. That's how their algorithms are making money for them. It's to you know, over time, seed advertising and so on. It's very difficult to combat that this, regardless of how many how many people you have when your business model is purely designed on, you know, eyes on. So, so to actually combat information or disinformation becomes very, very difficult when your entire platform depends on continuous flow of information to the end user and the end user purely by their likes and shares you know, will will be driven by the very same algorithms towards a particular, uh, uh, you know, social group identity subset. Uh, and, and if I remember correctly, you know, there were studies on on uh, I think Zainab Tufekci done work on YouTube that you know seventy percent of the video uh, videos that are viewed on YouTube is through the right hand side recommended videos, uh, which is insane. You know, only 30% of the videos watched is what people actually go on there to watch. The rest is what's being fed through the algorithms based on what they've previously watched. And I think she also found that they become more and more extreme, uh, you know, as you're watching. I just don't know how you can combat that when the entire ecosystem, when the entire economic business model uh, is really built uh, on keeping you hooked on the platform. I wonder if you, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, this is nothing new, but I wonder if you had any thoughts uh, on that particular dilemma. I, 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 yeah, I do. I mean, I, I, I think the dilemma, sadly, is, is broader even than simply the, the um, kind of um, optimized for engagement mm-hmm. algorithms. So, so of, of information creation, you, you very correctly say, is optimized to keep people on the platform. But the, the entire platform is actually itself optimized for growth in, in a more general sense. So, really you know all, all of these platforms have been designed to be just about as frictionless as possible friction mm. is a really important idea um for, for in the world of big tech and we don't talk about it enough outside of it but they're obsessed with it inside you know the idea that making anything slightly easier or slightly harder mm. will ha- have um, vast consequences as to whether millions of people click on something or something else you know you make a yeah. box a slightly different color or slightly bigger or slightly more central all of that it's it, much of this isn't really to do with making things possible or impossible. It's making things easier or more difficult and less um, off frames, right? Le- less off frames. Right. So, whatever yeah, you- like, if you want to leave Facebook, please write a letter, you know, to a, <laughs> a, a, a company in France, you know, in 
in, in pen and ink. And yeah. I, I, remember, I remember when I was um, having, trying to get my data out of some companies, it, they literally, you know, the digital platforms would require me to physically mail them a letter in order to get data. Um, wow. So, you know, and that's friction. That, that, that For sure, that's all friction at work. But on the other side, completely frictionless is account sign up um, and then actually sharing stuff because they want to maximize both of those two things. So when it's so easy to set up accounts and there's so little information or delay or, or friction that's put in place of you doing that, um, that, that also is something which makes a platform more exploitable. Mm. Um, and, 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 and likewise, you know, in terms of actually sharing things, there's all kinds of frictions to be put in place around, you know, dampening down virals about the war, which we don't know whether they're right or not, or, or causing people to delay um, uh, before they can share something or um, uh, limit share, capping the amount of sharing activity that, that each account can actually do. There's, there's all mm. kinds of friction that you might put in place, um, which isn't put in place in many ways. And um, I think that my reading is that um, these conversations um, take the form of a, a struggle, which tends to be happening on the inside of each of the tech giants. Mm. Um, you definitely have like voices especially on the kind of policy, legal and kind of safety and security sides of the companies mm. um, that would love more friction. Like it's a lot easier. It, it's a lot easier to, to catch Russian disinformation operations if you ask people for more identifying information mm. about themselves, for instance. Um, uh, it's a lot easier if you just shut off um, account creation, um, say on a particular um, IP range, you know, yeah. that might that might be compromised. There's all kinds of technical mm, things mm, you can mm, do, mm. Um, or the amount of shares you can do per day, or, or yeah, like yeah, which, which I think is notionally capped, mm. but it's at some sort of ridiculously high level. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't seem to have much meaningful, like kind of effect at all in in the kind of campaigns that we see. Um, but on the other side of the the fence, you've got kind of growth and revenue, you know, and and their incentives are, are obviously to get these platforms as big as possible and as profitable as as possible, and they're never going to want anything other than frictionless experiences because 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 friction stands in the way of all of that that's really interesting and uh, i remember just recently i was listening to a uh, podcast tristan harris's podcast uh your undivided attention uh and i remember i forget the name of the person he had on but he was in fact there were two from china and he was talking about you know the chinese uh i think it was uh, wechat uh which has actually got quite a lot of uh, restrictions like the ones you mentioned in there and the user experience is uh, overall by the sounds of it actually quite better. Of course, the virality of particular information is nowhere near as great uh, and the penetration into the network is far more uh, tightly controlled. But at least from uh, you know these two people that Tristan Harris had on, uh, their, their analysis was that uh, the user experience is actually uh, a lot better and, and, and in many ways even safer, which is really strange to hear given that it's, you know, we're talking about a, you know, something we would describe as an you know, autocratic state uh, like China. Yeah, that, that, it, 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 that is a really interesting point. And I, I think it reflects another as well, which is, of course, that, you know, um, the Chinese state has been much more willing to involve itself in questions of platform engineering. Mm. Um, I mean, in in the kind of, you know, the, the kind of Western conversations around platform governance, like a lot of it, far too much of the conversation, in my view, has been really kind of concentrated on like um, moderation and, and kind of takedown, you know, so um, finding and removing content, which is illegal hate speech mm. and so on, which is which is fine. But but it, it kind of it hasn't concerned itself with everything that we're talking about here. 
So it's you know, not structural, I mean, right? There are no structural changes there. It's, it's, it's not it's, structural. It's not yeah. systemic. Yeah. And, and, and um, it, it, it's um, it's it's only very yeah it's it's only very surface levels. And there's there's much more that states could do, for instance, to make to force Facebook or Twitter um, uh, or a YouTube or a Reddit into making themselves harder targets um, for information operations um, if they were require these platforms to put in place certain mm. systemic changes, you know, structural and algorithmic and curative changes to to to, to make them more difficult. And um, mm. I would say also, whilst we're on the on the topic of um, Chinese um, social media platforms, TikTok obviously is the is the one which is um, actually used by by tons of Western audiences. Mm. Uh, right now, we can, as researchers, we cannot legitimately get any kind of scale data from TikTok. Oh wow! So we have no idea how much information operations is happening on TikTok, and that is terrifying to me because wow. um, I get all kinds of anecdotal accounts of very mimetic, um, uh, sometimes quite shocking, extremely graphic pro-invasion. Um, messaging happening on on TikTok all the time. Um, we know obviously that the much like the White House, the the Russian state has recruited TikTok influencers, so mm. they know how important this is the battleground. Um, and you know that there is no real way in which civic society um, and academic researchers can do anything more than you know anecdotal qualitative research. And that that to me is completely it's it's madness that in the you know, in, in 2022, we're still in a state where civic society is blind to the possible scale of disinformation on a, on a platform, which we, you know, is now really central to our, yeah. to our media diet. The, the, yeah, the size of TikTok, which is, uh, wow, that's incredible. And that's maybe an interesting pivot. In fact, just one one other question, if you can just clarify for me before we then pivot on to uh, Ukraine and Russia, because that's, that's certainly uh, an area I want to explore. I remember also hearing or reading somewhere that it was 2009 and 2012 that uh, Facebook and Twitter respectively introduced the like and the share button. The, you know, the the years might I, I might be off. You know, you know someone's probably going to fact check me on it, uh, uh, but it's around then anyway. And that it was actually that that really changed the game. What do you think about that? Is that is that and maybe if that is the case, why did that change the game so much? it's it's really like it's really hard to say to be honest as an external researcher exactly what the inputs to these I, I, presumably what you mean there is it changes the game because it, it changes the way that information flows so or it and, the, the, and the user engagement I, I think also and the the, yeah. the you know how much how much uh, you're no longer passive uh, you are now an active participant in this network in this you know as a, as a node within the network for sure I mean super important. Of course, super important. Very hard to like. My my sense is that um, my sense is that um, the kind of algorithms flow back and forth and are kind of constantly tweaked all the time. I actually, t- to me, the the one bit of kind of uh, algorithmic creation around 2012 that that's probably the most important is actually the one you already mentioned around YouTube recommend, re- recommended mm-hmm. videos because that was abs- It's absolutely true to say that um, over that time, um, people were being led um, into more and more extreme content. And and if you look at the kind of emergence of kind of extremist political parties, you know, from online venues, they all basically came out of YouTube. Um, You know, and and this kind of conception that we have of of kind of, you know, kind of this kind of liberal idea that that, that good ideas tend to win out over bad ideas Mm. and this kind of, you know, even in this even contest, it wasn't an even contest. 
like mm. like absolutely enormous amounts of exposure was was given to a series of niche ideas which i think is caused a tra- kind of traumatic series of kind of cultural shifts and um, mm. which we're still living with now i mean youtube quite drastically changed um the way that they were recommending algorithm uh, recommending videos in in the years subsequent um, mm-hmm. But I think the damage at that point was done. And, you know, a lot of these channels had already garnered like kind of like very, very large subscription bases. Um, and uh, and we're living with those consequences now. Um, so so that that one to me is, is one of the saddest um, kind of uh, uh, kind of um, episodes, I suppose, in recent history of, of just how kind of important the kind of cultural consequences can be of something which seems as like seems as banal and simple as just a, a series of videos to watch next. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, you know, you, you talked about power before. I mean, that, that is incredible power when, you, uh, when you're aware of uh, those networks and, of course, the reach of those networks and, of course, seeding ideas is therefore becomes, uh, becomes quite easy. Uh, but that may be an interesting uh, uh, place to also pivot uh, to uh, Ukraine and what we're seeing uh, going on right now because we are seeing a, a new changed uh, uh application of power, uh, but also of politics, I think. We're seeing that uh, play out uh, in Ukraine. As I mentioned before, only I had Peter Singer on the show a few days ago, and we explored how Ukraine won the information uh, war. But what we didn't really discuss is that uh, that it has done so only in the West, largely. Because, of course, that's, you know, that's what I'm exposed to, and that's what uh, I'm seeing in my tweet, uh, Twitter feed and so on. Uh, but your current research shows something very, very different uh, when we're looking at the BRICS countries, uh, which, of course, is the acronym for the five major emerging economies, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. So how is the the current war in Ukraine perceived uh, in the BRICS countries? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I've always been like somewhat uncomfortable, to be honest, with, with, this, with this idea that, that, that the Ukraine, that Ukraine ha- has obviously won the information war. Um, like it's, it's always struck me as actually being... <laughs> I mean, uh, like with all due respect, Peter Singer, like fairly complacent idea that it has. Like, uh, we, we, and I'm not necessarily sure that 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 it has. And like, it, it felt to me, and and it wasn't just obviously a single voice. It was there was tons of media talking about, you know, the kind of success of of Kiev's information warfare and how Putin had left his propagandists in the lurch, and you know they didn't know who's going to be on the Donbass. This is another consequence of secrecy and war planning, and so on. Um, and it felt to me a lot like it's felt in the 2016 presidential election and it felt during Brexit, you know, and, and it's felt at other times when we are in um, information spaces, which um, we believe are far more general than they actually are. Um, so we're surrounded by pro-Ukraine solidarity. I am. I, 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 there is not a single pro-Russian voice no, in my no. timeline on any social media. That is so interesting because, you know, Not tomorrow we might wake up, it'll be like, I, I don't know any Trump voters who voted for Trump. It's the, it, you know, it's uh, that, that's that exactly kind of, what it was yeah, like. Yeah, right, right, right. And, and no one could believe it. No wow, one could believe um, that we voted, mm, that the UK voted mm, to Brexit. Mm, I, 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 there was not a single Brexit voice in my time. I mean, I mean, I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm a centre-left think tanker that lives in London. Mm, mm, like, mm. of course there isn't. Like, mm. everyone that I, I know was was ardently remained. Yeah, and, of um, So, um like I, I it, it felt slightly like that again um mm-hmm. and um uh so so that's the but 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 of course it was it was it's just a hunt so so you you, you know you, you, that's where the kind of like actual data and analysis comes in so mm. um 
Yeah, the, the idea was essentially to um, uh, focus on um, the uh, the the kind of um, the the obvious, the most obvious, I would say, kind of Russian influence operation to date. And um, it was, in fact, actually our research wasn't wasn't actually disposed to provide more evidence that it was a Russian influence operation. I was kind of taking that as a given, to be honest, going mm. into the research. There'd already been um, re- research by uh, Mark Owen Jones and by the DFR Lab and Atlantic Council and others um, who that, that had noticed that around these two hashtags, hashtag I stand with Putin, hashtag I stand with Russia, don't use them anyone, just make some trend again. Mm. Um, uh, around those two hashtags, they, they, they both started trending um, on March 2nd, March 3rd. Mm. Um, and um, there was all this. I, I'd read a piece in the Times uh, of London where they'd written up the fact that it was trending in India as a as, as an example of anti-colonial sentiment in India. Um, yeah, as in born in India, uh, is, is is that what he was trying to say? That it was a there was domestically kind of. A, it, yeah, you know, it was it was saying driven. oh um, yeah. hashtag I stand with Putin's trending in India and India is quite anti-colonial mm. and mm. you know um, we you know. Um, Maybe India isn't behind, mm, mm. you know, behind Ukraine at all. You know, that that, that, that was yeah. the kind of nature of the article. Um, and um, already this research had emerged actually on that day and the day after, which, which, had, which had noticed kind of um, suspicious patterns in the account behaviours of accounts that were using those hashtags. Um, there's lots of things that us researchers look at to try and identify an influence operation. Mm-hmm. Um, and normally a series of kind of um, interlocking patterns, which are very different from normal organic versions of those patterns and mm-hmm. um, together is, is the nearest that we can get. So loads of accounts set up on the day of the invasion and um, loads of accounts, uh, all the other accounts set up like, like very recently or the vast majority of them, um, extremely high retweet to tweet ratios. Um, mm. And Mark Owen Jones had, had, had noticed that the, the profile pictures, some of the profile pictures of the account showing the hashtag had been used in romance scams mm. uh, before. <laughs> and that, that there, there were extremely dense retweet networks, meaning that, that, that all the same messages were being retweeted by all of these accounts. Like you, you don't expect social media, organic social media is noisy and contradictory mm. Mm. And, and very human and, and and it do, it just doesn't have kind of um, like clear patination like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so so re- really, we we stepped in to the to to, to do research, which um, was kind of presuming that there was a Russian influence operation that it probably mixed together some automation, some human activity, some accounts which were compromised, some accounts which might be being paid to engage. You know, typically these campaigns have all these things. Um, mm. over, overlapping, but but we we wanted to try and learn more about the accounts that were pumping these hashtags. So we um, we took um, we did lots of data wrangling, collected twenty odd million tweets, hundreds of thousands of of Twitter accounts, and then winnowed it down to ten thousand accounts that um, had um, shared the hashtag more than five times, five or more times. Um, so not the whole network for sure. Uh, but we thought a pretty high signal part of the mm. network. These, these accounts are really pumping out the hashtag. Um, and then we did actually a, uh, a a new technique. We haven't really done this very much. It's it's a technique that that my colleagues, uh, Chris and David, um, have pioneered. Um, 
which is called semantic profiling or semantic fingerprinting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a um, application of a, a kind of new part of natural language processing. I won't get into too much technical detail as you want me to, Mads, but, but essentially it uses um, one of the new models, deep learning models, which, which Google ha- has, has developed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can allow you to build a much more general picture of someone's language use. So, so typically, normally in, in, in this world of research, we might build an algorithm, which is like, are you talking about politics? Yes or no. Are you talking about sport? Yes or no. You know, mm-hmm. we, we shape these algorithms, um, you know, and they can they can then make that decision at scale, which is why we we need them, because obviously we, we, we were dealing here with 1.6 million tweets. Yeah. You know, yeah. so so it's far too much for us to manually read. So we need we need to these algorithms are our are our um, the only way you can do it, really. I mean, it's the only way of dealing with it. Yeah. Um, but these deep learning models, transformer-based models, build very general encodings um, of, um, well, we, we, we fed them the last 200 tweets that each of these 10,000 accounts had sent. Mm-hmm. So not just the pro-Russian messaging, but everything else they were doing as well. Um, and um, we bring that back. We encode each. It's a semantic similarity. So basically what it's really doing is it's measuring the similarity of every message with every other message that we've collected. So right. it's obviously like very mathematically complex series. Of, of, of an individual profile or of all those profiles that you've got? Well, so firstly, the 200 messages for each profile, mm-hmm. then the profile, and in I... doing so, all the profiles. Oh, wow. 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 That's... <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible that is incredible um, so we, we 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 bring back a um a encoding for each user in 768 dimensional space or something um you know a, a very a kind of a very high dimensionality um encoding we basically turn that into a, a vector position on a map um so what that is showing us is um accounts which over those 200 tweets have used similar language will be close to each other basically and accounts which have used different language will be further away mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay and um, when we get the network back um we then run a- another network another algorithm um on top to basically um divide that into communities for you mm. um so it says okay that's community that's community that's community and so on um and then when we got that back, we realized that there were, and this is a kind of moment of joy as a researcher, mm. um, very, very clear, different kind of clusters within this network topography. So if you just get back a kind of, yeah, everything's all over the place. All over kind the of place. There doesn't yeah. be any pattern. You can't make sense of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But but it had, it, this approach had managed to identify very clear nodes. There's a bunch of accounts there. There's a bunch of accounts up there. There's a bunch of accounts over there. Um, mm. And then it was really just the 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 task of getting kind of analysts um, kind of r- manually appraising and then kind of developing a kind of a bit of a kind of framework as we went, kind of randomly selected accounts, which were at the very core of each of those communities. So we, we select accounts that have what we call high modularity schools, but very central to each mm-hmm. community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that produced a network map, which, um, which I think you might have seen, which is one which um, shows that there are, you know, um, there are there are accounts which bef- yeah, all and mind you, let's remember all of these accounts have shared hashtag I stand with Putin mm. five or more times or mm, hashtag mm, I stand with Russia. Mm, mm. Uh, but before and after they were doing that, you've got accounts which are one cluster which is kind of pro BJP kind of Hindi language mm. kind of Modi meme pushing spam bots. Mm, mm. You've got a completely different 
um, kind of Indian community, which is Tamil, very anti, uh, mm. anti-Modi up there. Um, you've got kind of a, a kind of longer tunnel of kind of in Indian English accounts, mm. a completely different Pakistan and Iranian cluster, um, a South African kind of Nigerian kind of um, cluster, a very uh, link, linking into a very distinct pro-Zuma, pro-BRICS um, cluster, and then a kind of South Asian tunnel over the top. And then this kind of, I think, quite a different operation, actually, which was uh, this kind of a, a multilingual, uh, multilingual kind of uh, primarily English language kind of spam network in a blue cluster that looked very different mm. from the others. Um, so this is realising two things. Of course, what it's first realising, this algorithm, is the actual, formally, the different languages that are being used. Mm. So... Uh, and and that's the algorithm, right? Just to just to make sure that I've understood what you mean with the, when we're talking about it's looking for the semantic uh, similarities and and similar similar language use. Are we talking about the 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 actual language, like you're saying uh, here? You know, you've got South Asian languages, um, and it's and it's bringing it down to uh, 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 the actual uh, language, uh, the geographical language that is speaking. Or we're we also talking about the context. That it's you know how how it's using language. Uh, you know, in relation to the the, the hashtag uh, stand with yeah. Putin, uh, so 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 it's it's really kind of uh, building uh, a dense profile of uh, the message that's actually being seeded uh, within uh, this hashtag and creating its it, a very very dense node, uh, and and then you're overlaying over top of over the top of that, you're then overlaying the actual national language slash geographic mm-hmm. geographic. Um, uh, uh, kind of geolocation of, of where that mes- message is actually be- is that being seen? Is that yeah. broadly what it is? So it, 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 it's doing both. Mm, right. um, Incredible. It's doing both yeah. of those things. So, so it's both realizing that an account that speaks in Urdu and an account that speaks mm. in Hindi are mm. different from each other. Mm. But then it's also realizing that two accounts speaking Hindi about football will be closer than one account speaking. Huh. In Hindi yeah. about football and another speaking in Hindi okay. about BJP. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so it's both. To be honest, it, this is an interesting. It, it, this is an interesting methodological choice we made mm-hmm. to use. Um, there's a number of different deep learning models. Another one would have been less sensitive to language different, like to formal language difference. Mm. So another one would have tried to translate everything into basically one common language and then go from there. So that that, that would have been less sensitive to. Um, you know, um, a, a Javanese and an Urdu Udu account. If they're both talking about Chelsea Football Club, they would have been much closer to each other. Yeah. But yeah. to be honest, I, I actually didn't want that because I wanted, you know, I, I thought the actual languages they're using is a really important part of the story. Absolutely. So, so yeah. I actually wanted an algorithm to, to be sensitive and to reflect in the output when accounts were speaking in Hindi versus um, Javanese or Urdu. But but yeah, it, it is and doing why? both. Why? Because it strikes me as a peculiar... You know, I think it's a hugely important point because of identity and sense of belonging and everything else. But you know, wh- why did you want that additional layer of the language in there as well? What was your thinking behind that? Because I, I think that that is one of the most important ways in which you characterize accounts. So, so if an account is talking in Hindi, that's that's an, an extremely important kind of behavior that the account is 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 exhibiting versus an account in English. So, mm-hmm. you know. 
you know, bearing in mind what, we, what we're trying to do, the whole point of this research is to characterize accounts that have been pumping these hashtags. Mm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, in order to possibly say something about targeting or underlying strategy. Right, um, of course, yeah. So, so exactly. I mean, of course, we want to know whether it's Hindi or or mm. Urdu or Tamil. I mean, like, not that we were really expecting there to be such language distinction, to be honest. Mm, mm. Um, you know, the beauty of, of, of research in general, and, and perhaps this method, is that, you know, you, you can go into it and use it without really, you know, I, I definitely had no expectation that I was looking for Javanese or Urdu mm. language. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. You know, I, I thought these were going to be primary because the, the hashtags are English. We didn't even translate it, the hashtags into I stand with Putin in Urdu. Right. Like, so, like, I, I was expecting most of these to be to be English language accounts mm. and really, mm. you know, them to be talking about different things. Maybe there's going to be a Brexit cluster. Maybe there's going to be a, you know, whatever, like a sports cluster or something. But, but um, no, kind of it, it recognizing that um, that that there's a big difference in the languages, the the actual languages that that accounts are using is is one of the important takeaways mm. for me of this whole research. And yeah, what we basically realized was um, uh, all these different language groups. None of them angled at the West at all. And I would say there's probably two things happening here mm-hmm. in terms of how to interpret these results. <laughs> Firstly, um, I suspect that what's happening here is an exploitation of pay-to-engage services. Okay. So uh, we, we often don't talk much about like the, the intersection between like geopolitics and information warfare and like you know, spam and online fraud, but there, there are a lot more links than, than we think they are. And, and okay. what I think is happening is that the, these are networks, um, perhaps different overlapping networks that have been rented to pump this hashtag, you know, in part, there's, there's definitely some of them. So there, there are just spam bots in here. They're not, they're not real people. Um, I think, um, you know, who, who are currently now talking about the Kashmir files or, 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 or like a video release in, you know, in Iran or something. Mm. Um, but over those days, they all just, you know, switched and mm. started um, just 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 sharing the hashtag in very large quantities. Yeah, th- um, that struck me as incredible. And you sh- you actually have some uh, some graphs as well as to the the jump uh, in in accounts, you know, from that third of March onwards, uh, for at least for some of those uh, for some of the data sets. It's it's absolutely incredible. Uh, I mean, have you been able to establish? Why the third of March? What you know? Have you been able to pinpoint uh, to some action or or something that's happened? I mean, obviously the invasion uh, started uh, you know some ten days before then. Uh, so was this a matter of you know catching up that it took him so long? I mean, or, or, or why the third of March? So um, I, this is my uh, interpretation as a as a researcher now more than like just the straight up what the data mm-hmm. you know necessarily says. Um, mm-hmm. But my suspicion is that this campaign um, was linked to the UN vote condemning the invasion. Because right. the, 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 there's a lot of, um, the, there is actually quite a lot of messaging linked to the UN vote, you know, and, and, and it definitely kind of exploits this kind of pro-BRICS kind of solidarity um, kind of idea, especially with um, South Africa and India, Um and, and yeah, what might what might have been happening here is this was a campaign to try and make I stand with Putin trend in these countries, um, both as a way of possibly influencing 
the, the the kind of general the general populace in those countries, but also politicians, mm-hmm. you know, and therefore diplomatic communities that might have been on the fence or trying to decide, you know, what to do about the vote. That is simply a a, a possibility on the basis of what I think these influence operations are trying to do. But mm. but yeah, I mean, if you want my guess, it's that th- this was an attempt to target BRICS countries in the run up to the vote to try and use kind of anti-colonial, anti-Western, longer standing ideas Mm, mm -hmm. um, in those societies to kind of puncture the picture of a global condemnation of the invasion. Yeah. So I guess fan fan old flames that already exist, uh, I guess, give give fuel to, uh, you know, some some of those old narratives that already exist uh, and and amplify them. Uh, And you said a lot of those were, were, I guess, bots. Have you been able to kind of... uh, get a sense of what percentage of them were bots and then of course you know how how far and how wide did these messages actually spread uh you know yeah. and, and of course how effective were they because that's ultimately what it you know what it, what it comes down to so we we can never we can never definitively call out a bot on a, on an individual level like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm much more comfortable talking about um suspicious patterns at the network right. level because because they, they're kind of much more empirically demonstrable to to, to, to be different from an organic mm. equivalent. Um, I have may, learned... May, can you give a... Sorry to interrupt you, uh, uh, but just to get a bit of clarity on that, uh, can you maybe just explain what what are some of those things that would make you believe that it's likely you know, to be? Uh, you know, I know you can't definitively say it's a bot, but what are some of those patterns and you, you mentioned some already but j- just to recap on on that before before you kind of uh, continue on what are some of those patterns that would i would lend you know make you believe that it is a bot farm that you're dealing with sure sure i mean well by the way i think some some of this is 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 paid to engage amplification i, I do think there's some organic um activity here as well right. um yeah so um look well let, let, let's talk about the actual hashtags so mm-hmm. um they, they basically come out of nowhere um, on, it, 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 I mean, it, it looks as if a switch has been flipped on. You know, kind of there's a kind of completely flat line at zero, and then on March the mm. second, it kind of spikes and starts globally trending mm. all over the world, and then and then and then kind of um, sharply declines uh, on the other side as well. And mm. you just you just very rarely see hashtag activity like that on Twitter. Okay, you know, yeah. Okay. Societies like it, 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 kind of social momentum, like kind of often takes time to build up. Uh, and there'll be a discussion about it for a while, and then normally an event will cause it to rise, and it will fall and then rise again. And mm. you, you you just very very rarely see a kind of from zero and then on a particular day, it's suddenly exploding into kind of global resonance. Um, mm-hmm. Allied to that, on the kind of per account level, um, you've got accounts which have extremely few followers talking retweeting Hindi. And then suddenly sending a English language pro-invasion series of messaging, which received 10,000 retweets apiece. Huh. And this account has 16 followers. It just it just mm. it just isn't the kind of activity that I mean, is it possible that this person is real and that just this pro-invasion meme was sent? Yes, of course it is. I mean, I don't work for Twitter and I can't look into this person's head. Yeah. Like 
I, I, I am anyone listen to this. I'm willing to take basically whatever odds you, you, you want to give me though on this on on on, mm. on an account profiling like that being part of an influence operation. It just it just is too unlikely that that that, that kind of activity and, and at that scale, work. right? That many accounts. Um well and then you have all these <laughs> then you've got all of these um different networks spread around the world, Tamil, BJP, South African, South Asian, you know, and all on March 2nd flip mm. suddenly start retweeting the same english language pro-russian memetics from the same accounts mm. it just it, it you know that uh, it, extremely unlikely but plus of course twitter has actually taken down some of these accounts now so we're also seeing enforcement action on their side um have they approached you in any way? I mean, given that this is your your research, and and, and I'll of course share the the, the links to uh, at least your tweets um, because the, the graphics themselves are just just incredible, and they they tell a story, uh, and I think it's worth for people to see it. But has Twitter approached you? Have uh, have they asked uh, you know engage you in in, in uh, for your support in this or to understand the the ecosystem any better? Yeah, I mean, I, I they have. Um, I, okay, I, I discuss right. my work with Twitter quite constantly. I mean, I would say I, I, I genuinely don't think that that we can do anything that Twitter can't do with their own data. I mean, of they course. have the best data science teams, some of the best data science teams in the world, and they understand their platform and they have way more information about their platform than, right. than I ever would. Right. Um, the, the, the difficulty is that there is a gap, I think, between... What a re- when a researcher like me can say something is super suspicious, mm. and when Twitter actually takes down tons of accounts, because mm. you know they are kind of like a mini government, of course, and they have a, a kind of very heavy responsibility to to not start deleting normal people, and it's in that gap in many ways that information warfare and habits, mm. you know, it's got to be quite suspicious because otherwise it's not effective. You know, if they're not pumping the the hashtag, what are they doing? Mm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean. Mm. So, so the, you know, they have to create suspicious patterns to to have an effect. To have an effect, but yeah, yeah but 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 they, you know, it's the job of um, the people operating these these campaigns to in, to know or to try and work out where the the evidentiary line threshold would be for mm. Twitter to take down and to always stay below that. Um, and this is the you, you know I was talking about this kind of hidden conflict in a way between militaries or states. Mm. And, and and the social media platforms well this is it you know mm. it, it, that that kind of dynamic is exactly the kind of conflict i'm talking about where they'll be setting up new accounts and, mm. and running them and you know probably doing research on the accounts that got shut down and trying to understand why they were and and twitter's doing the 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 you know on the other side trying to do the same thing detection and enforcement mm. um i, I really like that it's we, you rarely yeah. see <laughs> Yeah, it's a, like you said, it's below the kind of detection threshold. I mean, that's that's really where uh, you know these types of uh, kind of grey zone operations um, um, exist, right? It's a, and it's also there's a, there's plausible deniability because it's very difficult to then ultimately trace to where the you know originator is actually sitting. Um, is, is that have you found that with this uh, particular data set as well? That you it's very difficult to to geolocate where the buttons are actually being uh, pushed, and of course it doesn't matter, right? It, you know whether it's in in in, in Moscow or uh, you know Delhi doesn't matter. Well, so again, like uh, completely my own interpretation, mm-hmm. but. I've often found that whoever runs these campaigns sometimes like slightly over eggs the kind of nationalism. So when we were like, when we were like doing like, you know, uh, a kind of research on like, say, b- information 
operations around Brexit, you know, English nationalists would have like these accounts would just have a kind of wall of St. George's crosses and like lions and like talk about nothing else. And every every tweet would be them shrouded in a, mm. you know, in, in like a something shrouded in a Union Jack. And it's 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 actually a, not particularly convincing behaviour of an English nationalist. Because, you know, mm. I mean, as I said, like, I used to do lots of research on the English Defence League and, you know, they, they are human beings and they talk about loads of other things other than English nationalism. Um, and in some ways, my impression about these other accounts, you know, Hindi, BJP, you know, they, they, it didn't... Um, it, they, 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 it felt like they were created by people that didn't actually understand a huge amount about the regions that they were trying to get these accounts to be part of. Now mm. we never, we, we cannot geolocate, like we cannot geolocate these accounts like that. Mm. That's a kind of technical trail of breadcrumbs, which which Twitter might might do, um, mm. but, but which we certainly can't. So I have mm. no idea who's operating these things. But yeah, yeah my impression was that th- these weren't kind of many of these accounts weren't intimately. In, in, in intimately familiar with actually what life is like in South Africa or India or so you know, they, so they um, didn't have uh, anywhere else. they didn't have algorithms that would uh, help them determine the semantic uh, differences of uh, particular areas. Well, so this, or... is, this, is, this is the thing, right? Is, <laughs> yeah. that, is in information warfare. Like, mm. hopefully, your listeners are getting a sense of of, of also like the, the massive difference and how easy this is to do versus how easy it is to spot. So you know. This might have cost them, if this was a series of overlapping pay-to-engage exploitations, this might have cost them like £500 to do, right? From mm. from from like a spammy marketing team that, that has like maybe got like a, a bit of training and a couple of like spammy tools in order to set up an account to get them to pump hashtag. You know, on the defensive side of this, you know, not only do you have all, <laughs> obviously world-class data scientists in Twitter trying to do something about this, but you've also got, you know, on our side, we've got two professors of natural language processing. I've got a team of 25 developers. You know, we do foundational research in the methodologies that we're, we're, we're using here. We're using next-generation Google-based deep learning models, you know, and it took us a week, over a week, to, 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 to pull apart the investigation. And even now, I can't come on um, uh, you know your, your show mm, yeah. and say for sure, Maz. These are definitely bots, and these are definitely Russia. Incredible! It's incredible. Um, I mean, so it's it's incredibly it, dangerous, it, uh, scary. Yeah, yeah. And, but of course, we also have to realize that you know, if we, if, if you know, the West is kind of uh, uh, employing very similar tactics as well. We can't deny that. Uh, and of course, we've seen just recently, um, you know, the group Anonymous uh, openly side with Ukraine and openly target um, Russia through cyber attacks. You know. Playing playing Ukrainian folk songs on you know Russian uh, TV stations and uh, you know intercepting the radio channels and so on and so forth, uh, and I guess that's the point you're making that this is the this is it, it is war exercised in the information domain, uh, and while you know we can't really there's no blood so to say uh, the it's a very fine line when uh, w- when we then cross into the real world and that's when people become motivated and you know start taking action. Uh, based on the information that they're being fed. Have you seen any action being taken so far? I mean, I know it's very difficult to to make an an assessment of the effectiveness of any of these campaigns, but, you know, have you been able to to get a sense of of a growing sentiment or or growing support for uh, the Russian uh, side of the side of the conflict, or what, what's your take? Yeah, no, I, I, I've no idea. Sadly, it's, it's too mm. early days. Yeah, know, this, um, this, this, this question of um, 
you know, how online behavior translates into offline effects, mm. attitudinal, behavioral, um, or otherwise is, is is obviously such an important one. It's it's in many ways the kind of holy grail of of all of this research. And like in other parts of um uh, so so you know we we've correlated online hate activity and offline hate crime. You know, we've done tracking, you know, of 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 QAnon groups and seen how that directly translates into 5G towers being attacked. Like we can see it, like there definitely is follow-through, but um far too early to say here and and I, I can't even really tell you like how much organic uptake this these campaigns had so far i mean mm-hmm. i think the very furthest that this research can take us so far is to suggest if it were russia buying this and again i can't tell i can't i can't guarantee that it is but if it were they might be going after non-western audiences more than mm-hmm. we think and and, and that, that perhaps leads me to to to, to kind of where some of our discussion started, which is around this idea of, of Ukraine winning the information war. Um, I think if there's one message from, from this, it, 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 is to, it is to at least lightly suggest that just because we, me and you, and maybe the people listening to this can't see pro-Russian, pro-invasion kind of messaging, it doesn't mean that it's not happening. It doesn't mean it's not working. It just means that we are not the battlegrounds that are currently being fought over. That's such a that's such an important point because uh, uh, yeah um, um, it, it's it's very easy to fall for the trap and, and especially because we have seen such humongous geopolitical shifts you know from uh, and, and and in no small part due to these what we perceive as the success of the Ukrainian information operations right I mean we, we've seen countries who have been neutral for you know hundreds of years uh, turn against Russia. You know, Germany's uh, changed, pivoted completely. Uh, you know, NATO's more galvanized, EU's more galvanized. So there's this, and I'm, you know, without, and this is something I spoke to, to Peter Singer about. I mean, even in the US, we're seeing people who, you know, were, you know, particularly Republicans who were originally uh, pro uh, Putin, who have now kind of uh, shifting away because the public sentiment is shifting away from, uh, you know, broadly speaking, uh, from kind of pro. Russia and Putin to pro Zelensky and Ukraine. Uh, so f- for that very reason, it's very easy to it's very easy for it was very easy for me to 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 speak to Peter about that, and because it's what I'm seeing, um, you know, in my echo chamber. And I think that's the that's the really important lesson here that um, you know let's not let our hubris uh, catch us out, uh, like you know many have been caught out with uh, Brexit, uh, Trump, uh, and the like. I mean, maybe that's the the ending thought, really, which is that um, Zelensky's kind of great success in kind of couching this conflict as not one between Russia and Ukraine, but one between Russia and the West, has has consequences that that we, we, we we're kind of learning about now. Which is that it, what it does do, of course, is it galvanizes, it unites NATO and 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 Europe, but it also kind of provides opportunities for Russian influence to have effects in other parts of the mm. world that actually have have much less sympathy with Western military adventurism uh, and uh, and um, kind of uh, much longer histories of um, of of, of um, real experiences of colonialism and all the abuses that they can bring and and that that however spectacularly wrong it might seem to me and you, to justify a, what is essentially a imperial invasion um, using anti-colonial motifs and means, that seems to be what Russia is currently doing.
Mm. Yeah, and realpolitik doesn't care <laughs> what what you know uh, what what, uh, what an information yeah. warfare doesn't either because it's yeah. all about effects, behavioral effects. You know yeah. that, that is what all of it. You know, information sadly dies in this world because because you know right and wrong and and interesting or not good and bad they all become instruments to 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 be used in in, in for ulterior means, which is kind of quite upsetting as a as a, as an author really. But um, but that, yeah. this is the world that we we seem to be living in now. Absolutely. Well, as you said, it's the uh, it's the death of gods, right? At the end of gods, uh, the information uh, <laughs> is the new god. Um, uh, on that note, uh, Carl, it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Uh, thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. And I think that's uh, that's a very uh, useful warning for us to heed. Uh, let's not uh, uh, you know forget that uh, you know there's there's a battle, but there's also a bigger war uh, at play. And let's not uh, <laughs> feel that we're winning one and then lose the other. I guess. Uh, so that's really the, uh, the the key message here. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Very uh, insightful. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please consider showing your support by liking and reviewing the show wherever you catch your pods. Also, if you're able, please consider showing your support through our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you. And until next time.